Hello, fellow foodies, and welcome back. This is Dr. Cassandra Quave, and you're listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious. Today on the show, we're going to touch in with this idea of seasonality and how our choices and how we engage with the environment can not only affect the environment, but also our moods and our ways that we connect with the world. Our guest today is Jennifer Jewell. She is a gardener, creator, and host of a public radio program and podcast podcast called Cultivating Place, Conversations on Natural History and the Human Impulse to Garden. She's also the author of The Earth in Her Hands, 75 Extraordinary Women Working in the World of Plants, Under Western Skies, Visionary Gardens from the Rockies to the Pacific, and What We Sow on the Personal, Ecological, and Cultural Significance of Seeds. And I have a copy of What We Sow right here. It's a really great book. Um, So welcome to the show, Jennifer. It's great to have you here. Oh, it's great to be here. It's great to see you again, since you have been a, a wonderful guest on my program and were kind enough to write a testimonial for what we sow, for which I am deeply grateful. So, Well, I'm deeply grateful for, for having the opportunity to read the book. I guess, why don't we start there and share a little bit about what motivated you to write this story? Because this really begins with your personal connections to seeds. And I think that's something beautiful that all of us can can in some way better connect to nature through our seeds. Right, right. You know, I I identify, as it were, as a gardener. I was raised by a professional gardening mother and a wildlife biologist father. And, you know, I, I, my whole career is based on this idea that gardeners and gardens and gardening matters in our world. Environmentally, economically, socially, culturally, and certainly related to our own health and well-being as individuals, but also as a collective. And, you know, 2020 came around. I've been doing my work for 15, 20 years now at that point. And when we were all sent into lockdown and I, as a gardener, went to order some seeds and got an out-of-stock response from my seed order, there was this moment of, wait, what is happening? And how is this possible? And and what does that mean to us? And, you know, there was a moment of sort of irrational, but also based in the panic of the moment, uh, real uh, fear of our ability to survive. And it, it made me recognize that even as a lifelong gardener dedicated to this relationship and act, that there was a lot I didn't know about seeds that as a truly good gardener, I should know. Mm-hmm. And so it, it sent me down this several year path of researching what I already knew about seeds, how seeds impacted my life personally, as you noted, but also kind of the state of seed in our world more generally from all of these perspectives, from environment, economy, and and our, our social structure as it stands. Yeah. Now, that's such an important concept to, to ponder, especially when you're faced with that reality that we don't always have access to the seeds that we want. And that was a very real thing that happened yeah. during during lockdown, during the pandemic. Myself, I had saved some seeds from a prior year of growing okra, but I think I hadn't quite done something right. And so I learned, wow, I don't have a backup necessarily if I didn't do something right. So within your book, you kind of 
go through these these very personal experiences with your garden and what was that like to journal and chronicle these days for you you know it was at, in the beginning of of conceiving of this idea of trying to document what i was learning what i was researching and why it mattered to me I was just using my journal, which is something I do for my garden anyway, as a gardener, not religiously, not methodically, but very consistently in a kind of, you know, scattershot way. I will make note of when things bloom and mm. what, what we harvest and what is happening in the, the climate the climatic conditions of my garden, how much rain, how much wind, how hot, how many days of how hot, that kind of thing where I live in Northern California. And so in the beginning, I was really just using the journal as a way to collect my thoughts and try and keep track of, of the different things I wanted to research. But as I went along in the process, I also realized that that journal was serving two additional purposes. One was it kept grounding me in why this mattered to me from my own food to my own environment and how those two things were actually connected, even though we often separate them. So, you know, we will talk about the, the availability and diversity of heritage heirloom vegetable seed or, or, or fruit trees, but we don't often talk about it in the exact same context as the seed that's needed or being grown for our large restoration uh, projects in the environment. But these two things are in fact connected. Like any vegetable, fruit, crop that you can think of, if you trace it back, it was a wild native plant somewhere. Like you of all know of mm -hmm. all people know this, you document it, you revel in it. And this, I think though, isn't always apparent to us. In caring for our native environments, we are also caring for wild food progenitors that if selected and cared for might become our best food crops of the future. So that personal journal allowed me to put all of these things together and keep grounding me in not just an intellectual exercise of like how seed is being consolidated or commodified or exploited or degraded, but also why that matters to me every day where, where I live. That's great. Well, you know, as someone that gardens and is, is an expert on seeds and seed sharing, what can you tell us about how are seeds produced today? When we, when we go to the hardware shop and you have these little aisles of seeds, like, you know, what does that really represent? And how does that differ from the types of seeds that you might find in a seed swap event? Yeah. This is one of the great mysteries of the garden world, right? And, and this was one of the mysteries to me, Cassandra. And, and that was a little bit horrifying to me that I didn't know. So, you know, I will go to, you know, my Ace Hardware and be like, oh, look, there's some fairy more nasturtium. I'm here. Mm -hmm. And so trying to trace how seed is produced in our industrial seed system at this point was an interesting endeavor. And the answer to the question is they are produced in a thousand different ways. And yet they are also, for the most part, produced in the way that plants have produced seeds since seed-bearing plants existed on the planet beginning about 365 million years ago. There is a, a, a plant 
it has a flower or some reproductive part that produces both an ovule and pollen, not necessarily in the same structure, not necessarily on the same plant, but together when the pollen meets the the ovule, it is fertilized and it becomes a ripened seed that then is dispersed into the world and has the capacity to grow into a whole new plant. Sometimes very, very similar to the parent plant, sometimes wildly different from the parent plant, depending on the genetics of the seed and the pollen or the ovule and the pollen and that great genetic mashup that is the sexual reproduction of plants. Sometimes, as we know, though, seed is produced much more um, laboratory-wise. So there's, there's probably a better word for that. But, <laughs> but it's, yeah, in, in a lab. Yes, yeah. it, it, in a much more fine and contracted way where humans say, I want this seed, but I want it to look exactly like this. And so they eliminate scientists and, and seed growers eliminate some of the variables to make sure that the seed you get is the hybrid plant you want or is the exact kind of a plant you want. And so that is how seed is produced biologically. But in terms of how it then gets into a package and gets onto our hardware shop, this again is wildly diverse. There are big industrial complexes that grow seed for say all the commercial carrot seed being being distributed and supplied across the globe might a lot of it's maybe coming from asia where they can grow seed in a different climate at a different season to then get uh, that seed to the northern hemisphere at the time when it's best for us to plant it rather than us waiting saving the seed and growing it out again next year so but then there are also small seed producers and growers across the, the Northern Hemisphere who are growing in their places, uh, growing maybe a little bit less seed, but supplying the smaller seed sellers and growers. And so some of our seed producers, you know, think of your favorite catalog. It could be Territorial Seed. It could be Johnny's. It could be Fedco. It could be Hudson Valley Seed. It could be Southern Exposure Seed Exchange. They will nurture and work with small growers around their regions, sometimes a little further away, uh, to supply them with the seed they want for their specific catalog lists. So that that's a kind of broad overview to your question. That's great. So this is all around kind of an organized commercial production of seed. What about when we try to conserve seed in our gardens? Can all of our crops, all of our garden vegetables, like can we save those seeds? Are they all set for that? Or are there certain ones that really you're not going to be able to harvest and, and keep seed for the next year? Again, the answer is is <clears throat> multifaceted, but uh, it is both yes and no. So it depends on what you're growing and how it was produced. If your favorite zucchini is a hybrid that is being grown and was selected because it's the, the biggest, the smallest, the greenest, the tastiest, whatever it might be, it stores the best, um, that hybrid, and especially in the squashes and cucumber groups, the cucurbitaceae, 
I can't, that's yeah. a very hard Cuc word. It's a cucurbitaceae. <laughs> it's that, it's that middle it's, syllable it's that, that it's just a, kills me. It's yeah. like that, it's a, yeah, it, has, it doesn't quite roll off the tongue. Cucurbitaceae. No. <laughs> there you go. So that group actually has this enthusiastic capacity to cross-pollinate really mm -hmm. freely. And mm -hmm. so if you have that beautiful zucchini that you chose because of those traits and it's planted next to your acorn squash, they could cross uh -huh. uh, because they're related enough. And then whatever seed you get from either one of those fruits produced on those plants will then actually give you this great collection of seed diversity and you have no way of telling what it's going <laughs> to be. But many of our seeds, you know, I'm thinking of our tomatoes, of our zinnias, of our, let me think, what other ones? Lettuce. You can save those really successfully in mm. the home garden. And just because you might get a great diversity of seedling variation from that zucchini or that acorn squash is not a reason to not replant it. Like you might get something that's really fabulous mm. that you weren't expecting. This is how plant breeders actually sometimes come up with their best selections. Wow. Let's just see, roll a dice and see what combinations yield what. Yeah. That's exciting. Yeah, it yeah. is. So when you're planning your garden, how much does seasonality play a role in, in what you're planning throughout the year? I think also for, for the novices out there, and I, I kind of throw myself, even though I do know a lot about wild plants, I'm still learning the hard way in my gardening practices about seasonality about when's the best time to plant when's the best time to harvest and so i'm just wondering how much does seasonality play a role in your annual plans around your garden well i think one of the greatest lessons of the garden for me is the reminder on a daily basis that i am not in control <laughs> yes. uh, that the garden is in control and the seasons are in control. So uh, the seasonality dictates everything. I don't have a big greenhouse. I don't have a heated spot. I have, uh, you know, my partner who I would say is a much better plantsman and seed grower than, than I am for sure. Everything depends on the right timing. And you learn this as you go along in a place, but I think I really learned this in making a move in my uh, middle adulthood from central Colorado to Northern California. And I had this, you know, kind of naive belief, even as a, a pretty good gardener, that it was going to be very similar, that, you know, it was all the U.S. West. How different could it be? Like oaks and pines grow here. Like it's not going to be that different. Well, it was so different. And I was hugely unsuccessful in my first couple of seasons because I kept planting as though I lived in Colorado uh -huh. instead of like living here. And in the Mediterranean climate that we, or Mediterranean type climate that we have here in Northern California, the best time to plant is always going to be the fall. And you plant a little earlier in the spring than I would have in Colorado. Otherwise the heat gets everything. Okay. Um, so like all of our spinach and all of our carrots and all of our garlic have gone in now. Uh, the carrots actually went in in August, which seems so counterintuitive because it's like 115 degrees outside. And yet they then germinate, hold, and produce beautiful carrots all winter long, mm. um, even though we get frosts. And so 
seasonality is everything and your seasons will teach you when to plant, when to harvest and, and when to just hold steady. And hold. Yeah. One of my, one of my colleagues asked me the other day, how is your garden, Cassie? And I said, it's, it's dying. <laughs> it's like, it's here. <laughs> I am not a very good fall gardener. I'm, I'm all about like the, the future, the promise of the spring and going into the summer. <laughs> what advice can you offer to those of us, again, as novices that are dealing with, you know, our summer crops are well past their prime and need to be, you know, faced with other things or just left to let the beds kind of rest until the spring. Kind of, how do you make those choices? Like, where do you go for guidance? Again, our listeners live all over the world. So it, it, this, I know the right. answer won't be the same for every, every no. place, but right. yeah. You know, I would, what I do in my program is I talk a lot about like why we garden and what gardens mean to us. Mm -hmm. And and the reason I avoid the how to garden is for this very reason, yeah. because how to garden is absolutely best served fresh and local. And so my first answer to you is pay attention to the gardeners who are growing all year round. And remember that the word garden means more than just your summer vegetable garden. It means your shrubs, your trees, your vines, your bulbs, you know, the 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 ornamental and habitat plants as well as our food crops, right? Yes. Okay. And so then I would pay attention, like you are in the Atlanta area, Mm -hmm. Go visit the Atlanta Botanical Garden or a community garden near you where there are people who are have been doing this for years and are doing it well. And so you will see that they cleared a couple of beds a few months ago in order to seed the plants that will hold that vegetable garden through the winter, even in your climate. You know, there is very active vegetable gardening in Canada throughout the winter. So if they can do it, wow. we can certainly do it, right? <laughs> so it's a question of like finding the models that are successful near you uh, with the amount of time and space that you can dedicate and then bringing those two things together to experiment and play. And then my final piece of advice there is to take a lesson from the seed bearing plants. And that lesson is you never put just one seed out there. You always put a lot of seed mm -hmm. out there. Some of that seed is going to feed the birds. Some of that seed is going to feed the worms or the skunks or the squirrels. But some of that seed hopefully will actually take root, germinate, and become the plant that you're hoping for. But keep trying. Having one seed go to compost in the soil or go to feed a bird is great. Keep trying so that you get the the balance you want to get the plants that you want. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, I think my hardest kind of emotional barrier I have in gardening is thinning out the seedlings. Oh, it's so I, hard. I, 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 I just feel like a deep pain. And I'm like, well, can't they just survive together? Can't they just both stay? Oh, or can so I, true. Or can I gently remove one and plant it somewhere else, you know, <laughs> which of course never works. So it's, there are, I think there, you know, you, you brought up a really great point about the question of not just how to garden, but why do we garden? And you talk a lot about this on your, on your program, you know, what, what are the whys, what motivates people to garden? What do they get out of it? 
Well, it's funny because I think again, it's there's the there are these layers to it, and and you know you you brought up one of them right there in in this fear of thinning because you don't want to lose that life that you helped to get started. Mm-hmm. Um, there is this just love of engaging with another life, right? Of yeah. thinking that I'm going to plant these seeds and I'm going to have this gorgeous row of carrots, and then to pull every other one just seems totally counterintuitive and you can't replant it again that just doesn't work like maybe some things but not most of our annual vegetable crops. I tried many many times it to- <laughs> <laughs> total fails like please live 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 no. live and no. you know the same with like thinning fruits on a fruit mm-hmm. tree you're like really every other apple should come off mm-hmm. you know so I think Many of us enter the garden for some idea of productivity. We want to grow flowers. We want to grow vegetables. We want to engage with our own survival or, or the value of our landscape around our home, right? But then when we get there, think if we're really lucky, we, we then start to absorb the otherwise, the, the building of habitat, you know? So you're out there in the garden and all of a sudden you hear that, vibration of a hummingbird right next to you. And you're like, oh, that is so great, you know? And, or you engage with the the people walking by your front garden and you, all of a sudden your garden and your activity there is building your human community. Mm. And then finally, you know, I think one of the whys is that in Spending that time outside with the soil, with the plants, with the other humans, with the birds and and whoever else might make some of their life in your garden, there are those moments where you all of a sudden find yourself like just kneeling in the dirt or staring at the sky or leaning on your shovel and just being. Like there is this meditative connection to, to something that I, I can't refer to as anything other than the divine. And, you know, when I look at what people say to me in my program, those are the two greatest motivating factors. One is this power, this empowerment we get in gardening that allows us to improve our own household economy, improve the habitat, you know, help to be a tiny antidote to climate change and biodiversity loss and reintegrate us with nature. But the second greatest motivating factor is how it connects us to this universal divine. And it reminds us that we are part of something much bigger, much longer, much more beautiful than just us as a single entity. Oh, that's so beautifully said. And I, I think you you're you're right on point. I mean, those are the feelings that that I have for sure when I'm in a garden. And it's also this awakening not just of the mind and spirit, but also the body. Yeah. Because I'm getting this gentle exercise, sometimes not so gentle when I'm shoveling things. <laughs> but, but you know, I like to call it my my garden yoga, right? Because I'm up yes. and down, I'm bending over, I'm stretching. And so I get these kind of, you know, nice stretches in my back and in my hamstrings as I'm as I'm working. And I think my biggest challenge still is making regular time for my garden. I tend to mm. do it mostly on the weekends, but I yeah, I think that it's probably better for health overall when you're able to just do a little bit 
more regularly. And I like that you journal. I think I may, I may take that and try that because I kind of have spreadsheets of where I put things in a very sciencey fashion, but I'm, you know, but then I kind of, once I've planned it out, I'm not great about noting when things are flowering, when things are fruiting. And I think that will be helpful moving forward. Just also put your, your thoughts about what's happening as things right. go. Yeah. Right. Well, and I, I want to circle back to something you just said right there. And that is uh, the idea of all the different ways that this speaks to us and making time for it. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think that in those of us who are gardeners and love it, whether it's like three pots on your front stoop or it is a backyard or a front yard and a backyard or a community garden, I don't care where it happens for you. In elevating the way we think and talk about this activity, just like the way we think and talk about food, in it not being just fuel to get us through the day, but it is actually art and culture and nature and beauty and creation and creativity. It's all these things. So when we stop diminishing the way we think as a culture about gardening as a very pretty so sweet that you spend a little time on a Saturday in the garden, Cassie. But, <laughs> but when, we, when we reclaim it like food, like music, like literature, like art, back into an essential element of our cultural literacy, then all of a sudden we see the value in making time for it in our daily lives so that it's not you know, a dilettante hobby that is frivolous, but it is like the time you put into cooking a good dinner for yourself or your family. It is yeah. like reading a good book or even going to church. I believe this, that mm -hmm. if we think about our gardens this way, it gives us a much broader permission slip to say, I have to make time for my garden, like my exercise, like my nutrition, like my spiritual work. Uh, I have to make time for it. And then, and then we do it. Yeah. No, I mean, I'm a big believer in scheduling. Well, I kind of live by my calendar and <laughs> <laughs> from one thing to another. And I found you're absolutely right. If I don't have things in my calendar, if I don't have, okay, at this time, I'm going to go to the gym. I never go to the gym. It's just, you know, so if I don't put it in, so maybe you're right about thinking about however you keep your time of making sure that that gets prioritized because um, right. it's so easy to slip into, you know, where all of a sudden you haven't worked in your garden in weeks and now it's overgrown and then it becomes a bit more of a pain than a pleasure because you've got yes. so much to catch up on and, and yes. getting things back in order. Yeah. 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 And I think if we pay attention to how that time in the garden makes us feel, you know, and maybe that's one of the great outlets of the journal is like, we think bigger, mm. we, we, we feel better, our, our nervous system actually like research shows that time in the garden resets our nervous system. And if you note that transformation of your, your energy and your thinking, your outlook, I think that will help be like one of those positive feedback loops of the more I go in, the better I feel. So the more I'm going to go in. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. No. And I, I like also your point about a garden is not just about a vegetable garden. It's about your shrubs and your selection. Like for example, of native plants, we have 
planted over the past few years. We've planted some beautyberry, which is a southeastern Ooh, plant, and some beautiful. We've got elderberry. We've got these these fun plants, and it's such a treasure to to watch them come into fruit. And I actually I've collected the fruits. They're in the freezer right now. I still have to make the 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 lovely purple jelly you can make from the fruits. One of my friends years ago asked me, what do you want in your life, you know, besides your professional goals? And I said, I want a house with a yard for a garden and a place to plant fruit trees. <laughs> and so when I when we moved into our house, that was the first thing. I mean, within weeks, I was getting fruit trees into the ground. And so we're now finally getting up to the stage where they're going to start yielding fruit. And I am like a kid waiting for Christmas. Oh, yeah. It's like, oh, oh yeah. I cannot wait until I get these cherries and these apples. And yeah, I've already had some very small pawpaws which is a local kind of yes. southeastern fruit but so i'm hoping maybe next year will be the year they can produce something that'll be you know that we can eat so yeah yeah there's just this there's this i think celebration of the passing of time also as you oh, yeah. see especially longer longer investments in you because your fruit trees when you plant them are not going to yield all this fruit right away it takes time mm -hmm. it takes time yeah. and patience so there's a lot of lessons we can learn from our gardens sure definitely and <clears throat> you know i think that longing for a little place of our own with a fruit tree is such a an existential symbol uh of like what it means to have enough of sufficiency of mm -hmm. uh being able to sustain ourselves with both beauty shade, habitat, and fruit, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's, it's, it's a kind of a perfect package. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I want to make sure we give a chance to tell folks about where they can find your book as we're coming up on time. It's called What We Sow. And I really enjoyed this. Um, do you have a website we can send folks to? Yes. So the book is available wherever you get books. There is an audio version as well, read by me, available wherever you get your audio books. Cultivatingplace.com is my website, and that's where you can find my weekly program. You can also order my books and they will come signed. But no matter where you order your books, if you would like a signed book plate, just send me an email, cultivatingplace at gmail.com, and I'm happy to pop a signed book plate into the post for your book wherever you might buy it. But I would hope you would consider an independent bookstore for your book yes. or your library. Ask them to, to get it in their collection and uh, that way it's in the commons. That's great. That's fantastic. And foodies, we have a very special okay. opportunity because Jennifer is going to make three copies of what we sew available. We're going to be putting out um, some information on social media. So make sure you take a look at that of option between a, a, a physical copy and an audio version. So that's an exciting treat. Thank you for sharing that with our audience. Nice. Yeah, that's great. All right. Well, thanks so much, Jennifer. I guess one last question. I have to ask this as we're in the fall now, and I know you have a lovely garden. What is your, what's an example of a favorite dish that you make with your garden um, right now with your fall oh. garden? Well, right now we are making a lot of soups and mm. into our soup, we like to put the end of the green beans. We have the last of last year's garlic because we've just replanted the garlic. We have beautiful spinach. 
one of my favorite recipes this time of year while the spinach is coming on and all the way through to where the spinach gets kind of hard and gnarly and less mm -hmm. lovely as a fresh plant is a cream of spinach soup, uh, which is like literally three ingredients. You know, you just saute a tiny bit of, of garlic or onion, a little bit of butter, saute very quickly the spinach and it's like a pound of spinach and then I think three cups of the broth of your choice, whether it's, you know, vegetable broth or chicken broth. And then you add a little cream and a little nutmeg. Oh. And then you whir it with the blender. And there's something about that nutmeg that just pops Makes the pop spinach. Out. Oh, Yum. it's so it's so good. And with like a little crusty piece of bread. Ah. Nothing nothing better. <laughs> that sounds fantastic. <laughs> Yummy. Okay. Well, thank you for sharing these lessons about gardening and a great recipe, Jennifer. It was great having you on the show. Thank you so much. Pleasure to be here. Great. You've been listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious. You can find out more about the show by heading over to foodiepharmacology.com where we have lots of fun things, including links to our merch website and links to the YouTube channel, Teach Ethnobotany, where we have the full video version of this episode and others. I want to give a big shout out of thanks to our producers, to Christine Roth and Rob Cohen for putting on a great show for you each week. And thank you to you, our listeners, for tuning in. 